Village Economies, a podcast to weave alliances for economic self-determination. We're your hosts. I'm Kayleen Bray, And I'm Karen Swift. This episode, we're joined by Angela Ferguson, EO clan from the Onondaga Nation, uh, who is a seed saver, corn grower, food sovereignty practitioner. She does it all. She continues to maintain and grow Indigenous trade networks. Years ago, we came together with Angela and other corn growers to launch and connect uh, a network and a movement called Braiding the Sacred uh, throughout Turtle Island. And we're so thankful that we could sit down with Angela today to catch up and learn what she's doing both in the food movement and her work to shift alternative economic paradigms. Welcome, Angela. Thank you for being here. To begin, could you share with us what you've been up to with food sovereignty? All right. Thanks for having me. I'm so happy to be a part of it. <laughs> it's been a uh... It's been a long road and, um, you know, a lot of the work that we do here at the farm is actually, it's enweaved with braiding the sacred, which was integrating people with the foods and that sacred knowledge that comes along with it from the elders. And then that connection, how you pull it all together. And I think that's really like part of the definition of sovereignty is that can we feed ourselves can we still perform our ceremonies? Can we still speak the language? And are we still willing to learn and pass that oral tradition on that we're learning? So I think it's all tied together in these last, um, it's been seven years. Can you believe it? <laughs> the first gathering, we first started talking in 2015 when we were planning it all out. And then it was like, boom, in 2016, we just somehow, some way had a gathering on like a month notice. <laughs> And now there are um, there's thousands and thousands of people involved with this, and that is um, that might even be an underestimation of the amount of people that are participating in not just braiding the sacred, but the whole food sovereignty movement as a result of um, a lot of this work that we started here in Onondaga. You know, part of the um, part of the economic value for us is that we've actually begun using our food as currency. So we've eliminated the value of using American dollars and U.S. currency as a form of value to place on our, our goods. And so we've kind of uh, resuscitated that whole thought process of other people have things we need and we have things they do. So let's use that food to trade, you know, to get back to that trade, the old trade routes and using food as the value you know, and the hard work that goes along with the labor intensive foods that we create, that that holds value too. So everything isn't based on uh, monetary and capitalism. Wow. I didn't, I didn't know that you've been just using food as currency. I love that. Uh, can you explain or share a little bit more about how that's working within the broader? Yeah, I mean, I could be I could give a lot of uh, great examples, <laughs> some pretty powerful examples. Um, one, one example is that, uh, you know, the wild rice um, indigenous uh, 
population was disturbed here, you know, in uh, throughout, you know, what people call New York State in the Haudenosaunee territories through um, different developmenting of, you know, of our waterways, uh, building homes along our, our lake sides and things like that. So we lost a lot of our wild rice, um, our native wild rice population of food that we once had. And so um, our relatives, one of our nations, our Wisconsin Oneidas, you know, they had traveled west during times of survival of Sullivan's campaign. And so there, they harvest that food there, along with the Ojibwe people, from there to Minnesota, all throughout the Great Lakes region. And so we still are missing that here, you know, here in the eastern seaboard here. We're missing our wild rice as part of our diet, and it's it's hard to come by. So um, with them being in the more northern climates and a different bioregion and having struggles to have white corn be as successful, you know, as it is here, um, we trade. So we trade pound for pound wild rice for um, the Tuscarora white corn or whatever ver- variety of Iroquois white corn that people are growing here. Because There's different strains of the white corn, but um, everyone knows that that Tuscarora white corn is the uh, hot commodity that everybody likes so much because the kernels are so big. But um, we trade with them. So we've traded with Wisconsin Oneida. We've traded with um, White Earth. We've traded with um, the Red Lake Nation in Minnesota. And so um, that's one food that we were able to bring back here to the people. And people love it so much now. You know, now it's like we're trying to work on ways that we can do uh, conservation areas to bring back the wild rice to to have it grow here again. So even getting seeds from them, um, you know, seeds are seeds to grow that is a little bit different than when you parch it and you're going to eat it. Right. So you need to keep them in a different form, but that's something that we want to work on now. So um, that's one example. And then another example is that uh, we created a, a close friendship with the uh, community of the Pueblo of Acoma and um, they don't have bison, you know, uh, they don't have bison that are, uh, free ranging in the area where they live down in the Southwest, you know, desert area. So what they need for a lot of their ceremonies is they need bison meat, they need Buffalo meat. And so we worked out a deal where the Onondaga nation, we have Buffalo here. We have a Buffalo, you know, free ranging farm here. And we offered up, why don't we trade? Because we don't have elk, you know, the elk have disappeared in our area. You know, they're extinct up here. And short of elk farms, you know, but the free range elk in the woods, you don't see that anymore. So we drove all the way down to Acoma. We butchered five buffalo here on the Onondaga Nation. And then they allowed five of our men to come down to Acoma and hunt, um, hunt for five buff- uh, five elk. So we traded one buffalo per elk. And then we uh, all, com- you know, communally butchered the meat ourselves and then we drove it back to Onondaga. So while we were there, we also taught them, you know, braid corn, you know, we could do something while we're waiting for the hunters to come back. So, you know, it just led to this whole different, uh, this whole different value of food, you know, because when we brought the elk back home, people were so thankful. And so uh, like some of them had never had it, you know, and, and they didn't even know what it would taste like. And now they're like, when are we getting more, you know? So those are just a couple of examples of like how powerful the foods kind of led us to places. And that's sort of um, 
how we used to live, actually. You know, we used to travel like that to get things that were, um, you know, not present in our areas. I love hearing all the seeds in the background. <laughs> I can hear them. Yeah, I'm, so I hope nice. that's not bothering, bothering no, uh, the no. podcast. You know, we always have seeds click in and pop in. and it's yeah, so they're, nice. they're part of everything, so... <laughs> They really are. It's true. But no, I think, I mean, I, I, I feel like there's something with that way of, of thinking and shifting mindset that I'm wondering how you're seeing that happening and, and what it's going to take for that to continue happening. So going from that way of valuing using monetary, more capitalist thinking to kind of, you know, the way it was, how we saw it before a different way of valuing yeah well that's the um you know that's the part of it is that food isn't always the only thing of value so a lot of times food was like reward for knowledge even so if you went and sat with an elder and you were sitting there to learn from them you know in exchange of that knowledge there would be a a a present of some type of food you know or a gift for something to sustain them because they just sustained you with that knowledge. So we're trying to get that um, concept ingrained into our young people's mind, you know, because as we can see, sometimes the capitalist ways are, you know, they, it's a failure. It's not success. It's not a success. I guess you could say when you have people who are homeless or starving or, you know, in a, in that society, you can't say it's a success. Because in all actuality, if it was a true success, we'd all have a little bit of that, a little bit of success. And when you see it not working for a certain uh, portion of society, including, and a lot of the times, Indigenous people, um, has, you have to rethink, okay, what did we used to do that worked for us? You know, because this way isn't working for us. And even when people did have money, I think this pandemic brought a lot of attention to the fact that you could have a pocket full of money. And if you went to the grocery stores and every shelf was empty, you still weren't getting any food, no matter how much money you had. So, you know, when there was nobody working in the fields to harvest, people were turning food over, you know, no matter how much money you had. So we have to really rethink what is the value of currency and what do we consider currency, you know, as indigenous people, I think that um, we've always used food, our artistic values, our crafting abilities, our tool making skills, and our gifts, whether that be your gift to orate, sing, dance, grow food, um, make medicine, whatever you were gifted with, that was your that was your currency. And so we want people to know in our communities that everyone does have a value. So you are worth something, not based on how much money you have in your wallet. Thank you, Angela. I, I'm really, I'm just moved by hearing how you're moving back toward traditional ways. And I'm really kind of struck with this theme wondering how youth are kind of mm, let's say code switching between capitalism colonial settler capitalism and the traditional ways of reciprocity what have you seen in terms of you know kind of walking the line between these two different worlds while moving in the direction of more traditional 
ways of reciprocity? Well, I think it's difficult because I, I mean, in all reality, we are walking, um, you know, in two worlds and in order to survive, you do have to be well uh, educated and aware of what's going on in both of those worlds. But that's where the, I guess you could say the stumbling block falls is that because we as, as native people, we're always aware on what's going on uh, on the outside world around us. You know, we, we stay um, abreast of what's happening both in governmenting ways and just climate things and earth changes and um, just society in general and the way that they're performing amongst each other. We pay attention to that, but it seems like that attention is not placed on the indigenous communities. There's a lack of uh, that reciprocity in knowledge sharing to understand because we kind of are so secretive as native people. We are not really that willing to, um, to really share a lot, to be honest, that's, you know, it's, it's become difficult. So what we figure we had to start doing first is, okay, we have to rebuild trust amongst native people first, even amongst our, our other nations between each other, because there's even a, um, a wall, you know, a wall up to any outsiders that are not within say a particular tribe or nation. And so that's kind of what braiding the sacred has done. You know, the food has kind of broken that barrier for us. Because food is that common thread that, you know, we all need and we all value. So if since we need that more for survival than money, you know, it's like, hey, we can show everyone how to grow their own food, you know, and, and basically there's uh, there's one less expense in your life, you know, if you want to look at it like that one financial expense, or perhaps you can invest more in the people that are willing or have the gift to grow. Um, you know, because they used to be just thought of as like the lowest caste of workers, right? When really you need them for survival. And I think uh, the pandemic shifted people's focus to realize like, well, wait a second, what do we do when there is no people working in the butcher shops, working in the uh, pasteurizing food, or, you know, even transporting it and distributing it from one of the country to the other, you know? wait, what? The people were saying, we can't have strawberries in January, you know, because nobody was transporting anything from California. And we're trying to work locally to make uh, people think in our local areas, you know, we can work together, not just the indigenous people, but all the growers and create this, um, this healthy food system where we could grow all our stuff here. And then, you know, in that same breath, we're we're preserving the climate because we're not traveling with fossil fuels across the country and, you know, transporting food and adding these expenses. So trying to get people to also think more locally and working with their own um, communities and surrounding communities. And I think that's, um, that's where it has to start first, you know, locally. That's a really good point. I mean, I think looking at, how these more like local regional hubs I've, I've heard of that as a model specifically around creating these food hubs um but also realizing and what i'm hearing too is is there's an important value around the networks that are being developed and and used and i'm wondering if you can talk a bit about um how you see um networks like braiding the sacred 
contributing to kind of building this different understanding of, you know, economies and what that means, because I think that link between food and economy is a really important one and not well understood. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I think um, one of the, that one of the good things that came out of the pandemic, I try to be optimistic was that there were, there's an organization that started up here based around this whole kind of concept. Um, Years ago, uh, I had met my nephew who used to work on my my uh, hunting and fishing crew here. Um, his professor had asked me to come speak to their food studies, indigenous food studies class at Syracuse University. And this man envisioned exactly what I'm saying. He was not indigenous, but um, he just had this passion about local with local food and how that's what keeps communities together because even in big cities, people feel lost, right? Because they don't feel part of a community. And so he wanted to see that in the central New York region. And he had the utmost respect for indigenous people as well, knowing that he always did land acknowledgements that, you know, the university is located on their territory and we're bound by treaties and we need to work together and all that. And he started up this organization that was called, um, you know, that he had envisioned as the it was a whole food system alliance. So they came up with this idea in order to work with the Syracuse community, but also to acknowledge the Onondaga people. It's called the Syracuse Onondaga Food Systems Alliance. And so the people that are represented in the alliance are indigenous people, migrant workers, uh, local farmers, big agriculturists, organic farmers, people that work in the medical profession that see the side effects of um, the excess of processed foods and how it's creating such a strain on the healthcare system. So we have physicians and people, dietitians, nutrition experts. There are uh, professors from the, all the local universities who are educating our young people about uh, food studies and its impact, both nutritionally and economically. Um, he also works with um, urban garden project development. There's there's all these different Basically, if you have anything to do with food, you're involved in this organization or somebody from your group. And it even includes um, people from all walks of religious beliefs, you know, that they're bringing their um, willingness to help. And so um, they started at the regional food market here. They started up kind of a food hub where everyone takes turns presenting their foods, educating, you know, community education and outreach. And then we all kind of work together on different projects. And then um, that organization, I think is going to be, you mark my words, it will be a role model for other cities and other um, regions, I think, across the United States that see what a success this group is becoming. It started out with maybe just a few people because the, uh, the man who envisioned it all in the beginning, you know, he passed away at a very young age. And it was very, uh, you know, upsetting for the rest of us to lose him. But everyone is keeping his work going and his vision. That's the impact his original vision had on so many people. And I think that's all you need sometimes is that spark, that person with the spark to light that flame. And it gets other things going and then other people add to it, you know, and and they bring another log to the fire. And um, I'm glad that we're a part of it. I have um, one of my... Uh, the guys from my hunting and fishing, he sat on our environmental task force here for the Onondaga Nation for many, many years, and he was retired. And 
um, he sits on the, uh, the board there with them. And so every conversation that takes place gets at the indigenous on a dog perspective, which you don't see that often, you know, you really don't. And so just to even have that place, it's just, um, it's amazing, you know, and it's, it's quite an honor for us as people that they are always interested in to know what do we think, you know, uh, they visited the farm. They came to see what we do here. They want to set things like this up for their own communities on the outside throughout the central New York area. So yeah, you can have this positive impact that can create this whole different belief on what is economy, right? Like, can't we grow our own strawberries here? <laughs> can't we invest in greenhouses? Can't we get some of our young people to do this? You know, um, there's even a, a group from Watertown that we've been working with that is trying to engage youth in agriculture. So they're using robotics and it's pretty cool. It's called ag bionics. So they have young people create these robots that do the actual like planting of the seeds. And, and it has these machines that automatically set up and go shh and water everything. It's really neat. And, you know, when I started talking about it to some of the young people, that's how I got their attention. You know, they don't want to be standing out in the field pulling weeds, but they wouldn't mind doing that part, you know. And so whatever we have to do to engage our young people now, we have to adapt and we can still hold true to our values. But if we need and want younger people to become involved, we also have to meet them where they are. And I think that's like important as well. So those are just some of the things that, um, you know, that we've seen it started up and now it's grown and now there's thousands involved with that. And now a lot of them want to want to know how does breeding the sacred operate, you know, because um, they see our work and our, our, our website and stuff. And I'm like, it's kind of the same thing. It's like uh, just reconnecting and creating sense of community with other places, you know, so that there's an understanding. And then we can also start trading food, you know, that we can let food be that, it might be the reason we're coming to visit, but things are going to come out of that, you know, and then it leads to other things. So, um, you know, I think it's going to reach more parts of how, how can we really be sustainable, you know, as a planet, not just, you know, as individual Indian nations, we could do all we want for climate change, but if no one around us is doing the same thing, <laughs> we're all stuck in the same boat because we live on the same planet. So, you know, there's a lot of uh, cooperation that needs to happen. Wow, I'm very moved by you sharing how youth are interested in robotics. It's so interesting. I love how you describe like whatever we need to do to maintain, you know, true, con true connection to traditional values in whatever modern way the youth are adapting. Wow, it's such a reality we see all over. Yeah. Um, I'm also just so moved by hearing the kind of strengthening once again of indigenous trade networks and really looking at that almost, you know, it's like an extension of the mycelial networks above ground and that continuation. And it seems to be that that really is what true economic exchanges, unlike this modern fictitious reality, which unfortunately is not so fictitious, but a future debt. You know, I heard a statistic that if all the money that apparently exists today were called upon, it would require basically cutting down every single tree on the earth and mining every single mineral out, which would lead us all to, you know, nothingness. Like we'd all die. It's just insane. Whereas these indigenous trade routes are an extension of that real exchange. 
And I would love to hear more about how you see that expanding, how far you are um, exchanging and, and how that work has been going and, con and continuing. Well, I think, you know, a, a lot of places that I traveled to in my, in my food travels, um, everyone had, was calling their places where they stored their seeds, a seed bank, you know, at that time. And I felt like, well, banks are full of promissory notes, meaning that, you know, well, that's what a note, that's what an actual dollar bill is. It's an IOU, right? And I was like, I don't feel like our seeds are an IOU. I feel like they're something so sacred that they need to be honored. So I didn't like that word banking. And then I thought, okay, well, when you give things, you give them unconditionally. So you don't expect anything back, right? Because the food does that for us. The seeds do that for us. And so we thought, well, what if people check things out? And then if they want to bring something back or trade something for that, you know, in place of it, so that another grower could have, there was this pay it forward kind of thinking. And it was more like a library. People were checking out and checking in and checking out, but there's no obligation monetarily or otherwise, but it created this um, really awesome um, positivity where when people finally got their first harvest of something they grew, they couldn't wait to come back and show us and say, oh, here, put some of my seeds in the seed library. You know, they felt like they were contributing in a bigger way. So the whole philosophy of it, um, you know, became this whole like sanctuary library idea where you're, you're just providing this safe house for these foods while they're just waiting to complete their life cycle. That's all that they're doing, right? While they're sitting here. And we didn't want it to be a display either, you know, where people just come to look at it. They have a life force, so they need to get out. They need to be moving. They need to be around human beings. They need to hear our laughter, our voices. And I think that uh, has changed a lot of the way that people were even looking at seeds, you know, and, the trade network for seeds is really, um, it's pretty powerful because a lot of the things that when you go somewhere to exchange or trade, they might have something you weren't even, you had no idea was there, but it's like these seeds communicate. And then all of a sudden you're there and it's like, they're jumping out at you from this shelf and they're saying, take me with you. You know, something catches your eye. That's what I always tell people when they come here. Go sit in the room and whatever jumps out at you, whatever speaks to you, take that with you and grow it, you know, go spend some time all by yourself, you know, and sure enough, there's always something. So I think by us um, stepping back and kind of uh, not only connecting with our people again, but you're being the vessel to allow something else to com complete its life cycle. It's created a different kind of consciousness about food. And so you know, when I think about some of these old, old seeds and or the ones that there's only a few of, you know, maybe a handful. I don't know if that's the last handful there is on earth. It could be. So I think to myself, like, it can be very emotional because you think how many other people carry this through displacements, through, uh, you know, different earth changes that have occurred over these millions of years. And they carry these seeds with them. The seeds went wherever the people did. So to me, that's what shows us that was the highest value of something. There were people that starved to death on the trail of tears, but they didn't eat the food that was in their pocket because they knew they had to keep those seeds going for the next 
generations to come. So that's like very intense kind of thinking when it comes to food. And I think people have gotten so far away from that, that if they can reconnect with that again, that's what does eliminate the value of a dollar. If someone would hand me a jar of seeds, a quart of seeds or 20 bucks, me personally, the 20 bucks has no value to me at all because of my value system. But that thing of seeds is going to feed generations. You know, it has way more of a powerful economic impact. It can support a lot more people than that $20 could, you know, um, it's a whole new way of thinking, you know, and I, and you'd be surprised how many people are on board with it <laughs> because during the pandemic, there was a lot of things that people couldn't get. They didn't have, we still stayed in contact with all these other nations. And as indigenous people, we were prepared. We had food. We didn't panic. We weren't even upset. We knew we could survive for years if we had to. So that was true um, sovereignty and true like sustainability. We didn't have to rely on those things. Yeah, we did for the extras that we like to have for the wants, but not the needs. The needs were already being met here on the nation. So those are two different things. Wow, those are really powerful lessons. I mean, just thinking back to how, what that value is that you have in your consciousness and how that. I think translates into what it means in, on a community level too. I think that's, it yeah. seems like, you know, it's like so individualistic when you think of the more, I mean, the capitalist system is a very individual way of understanding value. Mm -hmm. But when you expand that, it's like, what does it actually mean to, you know, support an entire community through seeds versus, you know, your 20 bucks. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> exactly. I wonder too, if, if, what you would say is, is would be an important message or lesson um, for, you know, someone to take away from this who isn't as familiar with thinking in this way, a more indigenous way of understanding value and, and economy, really, what would you say or, or want people to take away from? from well, this? I think if you think about, you can think about it as uh, individual indigenous nations. You could think about it as your towns, your cities, your counties, your states to your country. If you can't provide your own food for your own people, that you have to rely on outside places strictly for that, then it's not sustainable for you. So you need to rethink that whole system of agriculture if that's the case. And that was the case during this pandemic, there wasn't going to be enough food. So that philosophy right there needs to wake everybody up that we all have to do our part. And it doesn't mean that every single person can and will grow food, but it does mean that we can rethink our whole current system of agriculture. You know, that if we start thinking of how can we have enough for everyone, you know, everyone here, right? Everyone, if you start with your own family and then you extend that to your country and, the, you know, your cities, your towns, everything. If you start that way, that's how you can work globally. You can't work globally and try to bring it back. You have to start locally first, you know, and that's where like our, our uh, 
our thought process has expanded to think like, okay, well, we need to export, import, and we need to do all these things when we could be doing all this food trading routes that were already set up here for a long time ago through indigenous people, where there's different foods that come from different bioregions, you know, and, and people's bodies are accustomed to those, depending on where they they were born and raised. And then, you know, you move somebody to a new area, it takes a while, a while to acclimate to those foods, you know, or sometimes they become a treat for you because you don't have them all the time. We need to get back to doing that. And I think, um, you know, Native people have been doing that for so long that it comes second nature to us. But even we got away from that for a little bit, you know, uh, a lot of our mindset became capitalist. And if we can go back to that same uh, local thinking and you're, you're not thinking as one individual, but you're thinking as a collective, that collective thinking is what is missing. That's, that's the thing that's missing. Everyone has some role to play comes into that circle. So we just have to figure out who in our communities fits each individual role. Wow, I'm so moved by thinking about yeah how to how to strengthen and go back to these collective values, and I'm really interested to hear what you see helping shift that value system back. Well, like I said, I think when you know we make this accessible to all of our children at our nation school, so we take it all down there to them, so that way it makes it easy as part of the curriculum in the spring. So the kids can help sort seeds. The kids can help clean up seeds. They can touch them and feel them and become a part of them and say there's 120 students, but only two take an interest. Well, there's your next two seed keepers for the next two generations, because that's all you need. You know, so you'll find the ones that are good at growing. You'll find the ones that are good at, at keeping the seeds. And so but if you don't make things available to people, you'll never find the ones that are gifted to do it. So that's the other thing is that accessibility and making it a part of the, the programming, you know. I don't ever even see it in outside schools off of our nations. I don't see um, seed and food ever being a part of science or, you know, agriculture is not part of any elementary school education <laughs> at all. And that should be a priority, I think, for people because there's a whole generation of farmers about to retire and who's going to replace them. You know, <laughs> people aren't thinking like that. <laughs> who's going to keep the seeds? <laughs> you know, you can't rely on the seed companies. <laughs> there was so much, um, you know, that I saw happen during the pandemic. There's a non-native farmer that I work with um, that surrounds the nation farm here. And I kind of work uh, collectively with him to base my planting around what he's doing so that my stuff doesn't cross pollinate with his uh, genetically modified corn. And I noticed he did not plant. And so, you know, I approached him, I called him up, Hey, how come you haven't planted yet? And he said, well, I don't know if I'm going to get any seeds this year because um, Monsanto has all the farmers on hold and they're going to decide which farmers are profitable and which farmers are not. So that was pretty um, alarming, to be honest, you know, and he luckily did get seeds. But, you know, to know that someone else, I said, how can you place your uh, 
you put all of your survival in somebody else's hands, you know? And he said, that's how the contracts are set up. So you really didn't have a choice. And um, I actually felt sympathy, not anger towards him at all, you know? And I thought, wow, if that's really the way it's set up, they did that purposefully to eliminate the small farmers. And a lot of small farmers around us here in Onondaga, they're no longer in operation. That places that had been going for 50 to 60, 70 years, you know, they're not, they're not in existence anymore because of that fact. So, and here we are still trucking away. <laughs> so it goes to show, you know, one system over another, what works and what doesn't. We didn't have to rely on anybody and we had everything we needed. So I highly encourage that to many, many different communities. Yeah, exactly. And then also, I mean, going back to the youth, you know, thinking about the next generation of farmers, that's a really, I think that's so important. We're not thinking that far ahead. And I'm just in my, my dad, I'm thinking, you know, he's retiring soon and not able to farm and what, you know, we need to step up now, <laughs> right. and get out there. So yeah, just appreciate all, all the work that you're doing around that. And the way that you're helping to shift that kind of way of understanding, I think it's it's going to be so important moving forward and just really appreciate your time and, and all of your energy. I wanted to thank everybody for joining us um, in for the podcast and just to thank you again, Angela, for um for taking this time and for speaking with us and sharing your knowledge and, and wisdom around seeds. Um, and I know we'll, we'll, we'll be chatting more about this, but um, for now can sign off here and say a big nyawe. <laughs> you know, I'm glad to share, um, you know, if there's anything anybody ever needs from me, I always leave that uh, door open to share information and knowledge and ideas and even to learn myself i'm always learning new things from others all the time likewise thank you so much angela i'm really moved by particularly your story about how people are like a seed is not an iou and shifting away from that mentality and moving values back and it was so good to reconnect with you here and learn more about how your work has expanded. And I look forward to continuing these conversations and connections eventually beyond the trade routes where you're even currently connected as we watch that continue. We have trade routes to South America as well, you know. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> that was one of the biggest ones. <laughs> We're going to have to head down there as well. <laughs> yes, definitely. We have to bring that vision back into our focus yeah. for now. All right. Thank you.